Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover Galatians 6, verses 1 through 18, the entire chapter. I'm going to entitle this section, Bear One Another's Burdens. And that sounds like a general exhortation to bear one another's burdens. But actually what Paul is talking about is is don't go around judging other people legalistically. Take care of your own sins. Bear your own sins. Don't try to deal with other people's sins by legalism. Because the context of the book of Galatians is all about legalism and how bad it is. Now in chapter 5, our immediate context, Paul has talked about slavery under the law and freedom in Christ and freedom in the Spirit. And that's our context as we start with verse 1, Galatians 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should remove such a person, should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Now, you who are spiritual, what does it mean to be spiritual? Paul mentions that word in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So spiritual people are people who are not fleshly. I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you're still fleshly. So there's the contrast. Spiritual people, but as opposed to fleshly people, fleshly people are those who are immature. They're drinking milk of the word. They're being taught, don't steal, don't rape, don't lie, don't cheat. But since there's envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? Exhibiting unregenerate behavior, Paul might have said. Okay, so he is saying that there are some people in the church who are going to not be living like that, not going to be living fleshly, but be spiritual, and their job is to restore people who are caught in sin. Now, of course, the idea here is if you've got fleshly people, you don't want fleshly people going to somebody in the church and rebuking someone who's in sin, because it's not going to be received, it's not going to go well. So it has to be spiritual people. A spiritual person is going to rebuke with a gentle spirit, not with a harsh spirit. Now, of course, fleshly people are those who are under the law. That's the context of all of Galatians is legalist. Legalist people are fleshly people because they emphasize the flesh. Their minds are set on the flesh. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And so someone is caught in any wrongdoing. Let's say he's embezzled something from the common fund of the church, which, of course, they might not have had common funds. But let's say there was a common fund. Somebody's stolen from it, and somebody goes to him that's fleshly, and he says, You are a sinner. You broke the law. Well, that's harsh. And the person's going to say, no, I didn't. I just borrowed it because I was poor. I was going to pay it back. You know, that he's going to be defensive. And then Paul says, watch out for yourselves when you restore someone who is caught in a sin so that you also won't be tempted. Why? Because legalists are always doing that which they're accusing other people of doing. They can never practice what they preach. Who was it, the famous evangelist who constantly talked about sexual perversion and adultery and pornography and all this stuff, and then he got caught paying prostitutes to do sex acts in front of him. Why was he protesting so much? It's because that's what happens when you're under the law. You end up doing the things the law tells you not to do. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 7? The sin, the law arouses people to sin. That which I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing anyway. So Paul's saying, look, don't be tempted. When you are reproving somebody, you reprove them gently and not with a spirit of legalistic harsh harshness because you're going to be tempted to do the same thing if you do that this idea of restoring someone of course that should always be our aim for people who sin is not to kick them out of the church but to restore them sometimes you might have to kick them out of the church if they don't repent but the idea is to get them to repent to get them to repent so they can be restored to the church the greek refers to setting bones mending nets and bringing factions together as the niv study bible says now notice that if you're going to set a bone you got to do it gently if you're going to mend nets, you've got to be gentle about it. If you're going to bring factions together, you've got to be gentle about it. If you're going to be effective. People don't take rebukes easily. A legalist is apt to say, you broke the law and thus you're condemned, as I just said. That's not the way you restore people. Now, here's some scriptures about dealing with people who are wrong with gentleness. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. So you're trying to get somebody to repent. You don't know they will repent, perhaps, but you do it with gentleness. And James in 2.13, chapter 2, verse 13, says this, For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, don't come after somebody who's sinning with an idea of condemning him. Come to that person with the idea of restoring him. 
getting him to repent. Now, we need to strike a balance here about this gentleness idea because Paul is talking about people who are willing to be corrected. He is not talking about errorists who are threatening to destroy the church. I mean, after all, just in Galatians 5.12, he wished the Galatians would castrate themselves. In 5.12, he says this, Galatians 5, verse 12, I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. Well, now, how do we reconcile that? Treat people with gentleness and yet get them castrated? Are we supposed to think that maybe Paul thought that castration was gentle? I don't think so. The distinction is is because he's dealing with different people when he wants that he wants to get who whom he wants to get castrated. Those are people who are trying to destroy the church. Those are not people who are in sin but who are willing to repent and come back into the church. Now, how can you be tempted when you are exhorting someone not to sin? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, verses 2 through 5. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye, hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the idea here is you make sure that your hands are clean, your spirit's clean, when you go deal with somebody who's in sin, because it's a touchy situation. Verse 2, Galatians 6, Paul says, Carry one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now that phrase, law of Christ, is only used twice in the New Testament. This is one of them. The other is in 1 Corinthians 9.21. 1 Corinthians 9.21, To those who are without that law, like one without the law, Paul says he's acting that way, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. Now, Paul has spent the entire letter teaching that we're not under the law of Moses, and now he says that we're under the law of Christ, which means we're not antinomian, we just switch laws. Now, this context of this phrase, law of Christ, really makes the law of Christ really stand out, because Paul has been talking about law is bad, 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 all the way from Galatians, and all of a sudden he says, now, fulfill the law of Christ. Basically, you've got two choices either the law of Moses or the law of Christ. Now, those covenant theologians who love to talk about keeping the moral law of Moses, 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 Moses all the time, there's no idea here, Paul says. There's no idea of keeping the moral law of Moses and the law of Christ, too. It's the law of Christ, as opposed to all this legalistic hogwash that the legalists and Judaizers are pushing on the Galatians. Now, how... Does Paul think that the Galatians can fulfill the law of Christ by carrying one another's burdens? Well, what does he mean by that? Does that just mean helping people out? Well, Adam Clark suggests that's what it is, but I don't think so. I think Gill is closer to the truth. The context is bear one another's burdens when other people sin. Because remember, he says, restore such a one in gentleness when someone is caught in a sin. In other words, gently reprove them, as he said in verse 1. And bear their burden. Bear the burden of their sin. Help them out of their sin. Don't condemn them legalistically and harshly. Help them out of their sin. Bear their burden of their sin. I think that makes the context makes a lot more sense to put it that way. Now this law of Christ, if you if you'll help people get out of their sins that way instead of using law on them, restore them gently, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? Well, that's anything Jesus said or his apostles said. Here's some examples. John 13:34 Jesus said I give you a new command a new law the law of Christ in other words love one another just as I have loved you you must also love one another in other words don't legalistically condemn somebody you broke the law and therefore you're condemned don't do that Galatians 5:14 for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement love your neighbor as yourself Paul said in the previous chapter of Galatians that's the law it's the law of Christ you fulfill the law of Moses by keeping the law of Christ John 15:12 This is my command love one another as I have loved you this is my law if you will my command my law same thing love one another as I've loved you we go down to verses 3 4 and 5 of Galatians 6 Paul continues for if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing he deceives himself but each person should examine his own work and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else for each person will have to carry his own load now, here Paul describes a legalist perfectly. He considers himself to be something. Look at me. I don't cheat, lie, steal. I don't smoke or chew 
or run with those who do. My lips have never kissed wine, and they'll never kiss thine, and I'm something. No, you're nothing. That's what Paul says. Just because you do that kind of stuff doesn't mean a thing. I mean, I myself was a goody two-shoes going up through high school and college. I never drank. I've still yet to smoke a cigarette. At the time, I've taken a little bit of wine since then, but at the time, I didn't touch beer. I didn't touch wine. I never smoked a joint, and it doesn't mean a darn thing. It doesn't mean a darn thing if you're not following Jesus. You're nothing. You deceive yourself, Paul says. Each person should examine his own work. In other words, a legalist loves to look at other people and say, you are not obeying the law. You are a sinner, and he never looks at himself. And Paul said, maybe you better look at your own self, see whether you're sinning or not. And if you manage to not see any sin, then you will have a reason for boasting in yourself alone. In other words, deal with your own stuff. Don't deal with other people, legalist. Boast in yourself alone or not respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. And by the way, this verse is often confuse, confusing because people are talking about, well, Paul just said, bear one another's burdens, and now he's saying, bear your own load. And it seems like it contradicts. Do you care, bear other people's burdens, or do you or do you only carry your own load? In which case, you're not bearing other people's burdens, and therefore it sounds like it contradicts. Well, of course, it does not contradict. What Paul is saying here is, bear your own personal responsibilities. Don't expect others to carry them for us. Bear your own responsibilities for your sins. Now, carry one another's burdens means help other people get out of their sins, carry their burdens, and here your own load is your responsibility. So make a distinction between burdens and responsibilities. If another brother has a burden of sin, help him with it. But but when it comes to your responsibilities, take care of your own responsibilities, deal with them, and quit pointing your finger at other people and telling them they're responsible to keeping the law. So you bear burdens and you carry your responsibilities. There's the distinction that keeps the two phrases from contradicting, as they apparently do if you if you don't read them right. So carry your own responsibilities, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. We shouldn't expect others to carry them for us, nor should we carry others' responsibilities for them. I mean, that's true. You know, I mean, bottom line is I can point out another brother's sin, but he's going to have to repent of it. I, I can't make him repent. And likewise, he can't make me repent. Let me read a quotation from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown that makes this distinction. This verse where it says, bear your, your own load, quote, This verse does not contradict Galatians 6. 2. There he tells them to bear with others burdens of infirmity and sympathy. Here, that self-examination will make a man to feel he has enough to do with his own load of sin without comparing himself boastfully with his neighbor. In other words, take care of your sin and don't think you're you're not sinning compared to your neighbor. But on the other hand, have sympathy with other people when they're sinning. Don't be proud of your lack of sin and don't be condemning and condemnatory of other people's sins. Christ should be our pattern and standard, not other Christians. When it says bear our own load, we should ask, what does Christ want me to do? Instead of going around saying, well, you know, this other person did that. I need to carry that load. No, you carry your own load. What does Christ want me to do? Here's a quotation from Adam Clark. The only rule for a Christian is the word of Christ. The only pattern for his imitation is the example of Christ. He should not compare himself with others. They are not his standard. Christ hath left us an example that we should follow his steps. And ladies and gentlemen, that is real hard to do because we all compare ourselves to one another. How many times have you looked at another person's ministry and said, Oh, he's doing so good and I'm doing so poorly. I'm going to condemn myself. Or, look at me, look what I'm doing in the gospel. I'm doing a lot more than other people, so therefore I'm a big shot. Either way, uh uh-uh, that's going to get you nowhere. Everybody's ministry is different, depends on your opportunities, your station in life, your gifts, your abilities, all that stuff. Do the best you can where you are. Quit comparing yourself one with another. Carry your own load. Carry your own responsibilities before Christ. Do the best you can. In Jesus' eyes, he will forgive you. He will succor you. He will help you. He will bless you. And in the end, he will say, well done, my good and faithful child. But don't compare yourself to Billy Graham and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't get as many people saved as he did. Because you're going to be eternally miserable doing that kind of thing. Examine your own work. Don't be a legalist. Don't look at somebody else and say, ooh, they're not doing well. They're sinning. You're putting them under a standard that's not Jesus' standard. You're acting like a legalist. And legalism is bad, bad, bad. Galatians 6, verse 6. The one who is taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. Now, this sharing, of course, is talking about financial support. 
which Paul mentions in several places. I'm going to read them for you. Philippians 4, verses 14 through 19. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship, Paul. Hardship? Paul went without money sometimes, and he was poverty-stricken, and the Philippians helped him out. You Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, when he left Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. He, that was the only church that supported him. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Thessalonica was the next next town south in Macedonia. And as soon as he left Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, and the Philippians sent him money. They didn't give him money while he was preaching in Philippi because Paul never took money from churches that he was preaching in. Not that I seek the gift, Paul continues in verse 17, Philippians 4, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account, but I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul saying, you gave me money, by golly, God's going to give you money to replace it. Plus more, because you sow Plentifully, you will reap plentifully. Plentifully, Romans fifteen twenty seven. Yes, they. That's Macedonia and Achaia, Greece. Macedonia being Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Achaia, Corinth, were pleased and indeed are indebted to them to the saints in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in spiritual needs. What Paul is saying here is the Jewish Christians kept the gospel going long enough for the Gentiles to receive it. So you Gentiles have got spiritual blessings because of those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now they need your money because of their poor, probably because of a famine that happened in the early 50s. 1 Corinthians 9.11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? Now Paul didn't exercise that right. He refrained from taking money from for them for reasons of expediency, for reasons to keep for the purpose of keeping people from criticizing his ministry that people might say he's preaching for profit. He never took money from churches for that very reason. However, he said he had the right to. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much? If we reap material benefits, you teach, you expect material things back. First Corinthians nine fourteen. in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. That does not mean, does not mean take a salary now. It means it's a metaphor that means you take donations, not a salary. A salary makes you a slave, an employee. You're not an employee of the church. This ought to also remind us that we who are blessed by teachers of the gospel need to give them money. Just as plain out simple as that. If you're blessed, give them money. Now, Paul's talking about money here, but let me expand that a little bit and make an application. I know a lot of times I'm helping young Chinese people and they don't have any money and I got more money than they do. So I don't need money from them, but I'll tell you what I always do. I say, I want you to pray for me. By golly, they ain't nothing better than to be prayed for by a Chinese Christian because they flat mean business. I like to peek on my on my screen as I'm doing a long distance internet Bible study or something and it's praying at the end and they got their hands closed, you know, clasped tightly, their eye, eyes are shut and they're praying with all the fervor that Chinese Christians know how to pray for. And I say, yes, sir, that's my pay right there. That's worth all the time I put into this Bible study. We go down to verse 7, Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. So this idea of sowing and reaping is applied both positively and negatively. You sow good things, you'll get good things. You sow bad things, you'll get bad things back. Now we're going to do verses 8 and 9 here in just a minute. Talk about good things. Paul's going to emphasize good things that you get by sowing plentifully. Paul states this principle in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Think if you were living on the frontier and you got your seed for next year, your seed corn, let's say your wheat seed or your corn seed, whatever, and it's sitting there and you say, ooh, I would like to have me some cream of wheat. Let's just take all those seeds, put some water in there, put some milk, butter, cheese, mix it all up, have some cream of wheat. I'm not going to put that seed in the ground. I want to eat it now. Well, what you going to do next harvest time? You're not going to have a harvest, but the farmer who takes the seed and puts it in the ground gets a bigger crop. God put that principle in nature to teach us the idea of giving. You want to you want to be financially secure, you by golly, you better give. If you want to be financially secure, you better give. There's it is more blessed to give than receive. And of course, you have to get used to the idea that giving is not like magic. You don't give and automatically Incomes the monetary crop any more than a farmer automatically gets his crop when he plants a seed. I mean, you might have blight, you might have a p 
pestilence coming. You might have hailstorm, rainstorm, windstorm. You know, it's not automatic. I remember uh, I decided I needed to give some money just recently. And so I picked out a bunch of my favorite ministries and somebody gave me some money. So I wanted to give give a portion of it back. And so I went through all these ministries and gave all this money. And I'm feeling pretty good. And I said, yes, sir, God's going to take care of me because I'm not sowing sparingly. I'm I'm sowing liberally and I expect to get a liberal return. Right about several days after that, the coronavirus hit and the stock market crashed. And on paper, I lost, well, you know, I haven't looked at it. I'm scared to look at it. But a goodly portion of my in, uh, retirement money that I was planning to support my wife and I in our old age on. And I thought, well, it's not automatic. But, hey, I'm not worried. God always takes care of his people. He will He will always, always let you reap bountifully if you sow bountifully. Now, I don't know why Paul got ex- exercised about this principle right at this point. It could be that the false teachers were deceiving the Galatians and not supporting their teachers or their elders. Or maybe the Galatians themselves deceived themselves into thinking they had no need to support their teachers. For whatever, they weren't paying them. When Paul says, whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Whatever means if you sow, whatever, whatever. It applies to everything. If you want to sow wheat, if you want to get a crop of wheat, you sow wheat seeds. If you sow sin, you'll get a crop of sin back. If you sow legalism, you'll get death. Now this idea of when you will reap, if you sow, you will reap. It seems that a lot of commentators take that to mean you'll get what you want at the end of the world with your rewards at the end. John Gill says, you cannot expect to lead a bad life and go to heaven at last. According to your present life is, according as your present life is, so will be your eternal life. Whether your sowing be to the flesh or to the spirit, so will your eternal reaping be. And I have no doubt that that's true. However, because the future life only expands the seeds shown here. And and I agree with that. However, I also think it applies to this life, too. I've seen too many people. I'm 68 years old. I've seen too many people sow into the flesh and reaping the flesh. I have seen the richest guy in my town. He was so rich, the money was coming out of his pores. He sweated money. And he now is penniless, divorced, penniless. <laughs> so I want to tell you something. I love that old Roman god whose name I can't remember right now. What was it? Plautus? I can't remember the name of the Roman god of wealth. And and you look at him coming at you, and he's limping, and he's lame, and he's stumbling along, moving real slow. And he finally gets to you. And then when he gets past you, you turn and look at his back, and he's got wings, and he's flying and like the flash. 100 miles an hour, zoom, gone. <laughs> so, taking this principle of sowing and reaping back to the previous verse, where Paul says the one who was taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. John Gill makes this point. The communication, the giving, should be large and liberal, sufficient to support the teacher in an honorable manner and to supply him with all the necessaries of life, that his mind may be free from secular cares and he be at leisure to attend to the instructing of others. I think that's a good principle because if you're going to free up an elder with full-time work you need to support him so he doesn't have to worry about it now of course i know everybody's doing bivocational stuff now but there's a reason for that you got elders doing too much stuff that has nothing to do with the new testament maintaining a building dealing with insurance companies and zoning authorities and all that nonsense you know instead of doing that just teaching the word and taking care of people and delegating out to the rest of the body would free up some time too but also, if you're going to free up an elder, you need to support him. And that's with gifts, not salaries. You don't want to make him a slave, an employee slave. We go now to Galatians 6, 8. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. Now, remember, in Galatians, Paul is making all these contrasts that I've pointed out, like flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit. That's one of the contrasts. Well, now he's talking about sowing to the flesh. He's talking about sowing to the law. Because, remember, the flesh and the law are closely connected you keep the law with your flesh. So you are, if you want to be a legalist and so do your flesh and say, do this and don't do that, what are you going to reap? Corruption? Now remember, flesh is used in two ways when it talks about operating in your human flesh apart from the Spirit of God. You can operate in your human flesh in order to do bad things. I want to rob a bank. I want to steal. And I want to lie. I want to be arrogant. Or you can use your flesh to try to do good things. I want to keep the law. I want to be give money to the poor, I want to help little old ladies across the street, I, don't, I want to not look at naked women in the, in the press, in the, uh, in the media, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
Either way, you're going to die. You sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. What's corruption? That means your flesh is in the process of dying. Think about stinking meat as it dies, it's corrupt, it stinks. That's what's going to happen if you live according to the flesh. Rome, Paul in Romans 8.13 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a great conflict, a contrast, dying versus living. Dying comes from living according to the flesh or sowing to the flesh. Living comes by living in the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul makes the same contrast here in Galatians 6.8. You sow to the flesh, corruption. You sow to the Spirit, that means you do the things of the Holy Spirit. You will reap eternal life from the Spirit. For example, if you practice kindness, God will produce more kindness in you. If you practice endurance, God will produce more endurance in you. If you practice joy, God will give you more joy. principle of sowing and reaping. You sow small, you reap big. If you want to love more, practice a little bit of love, and God will show you some more love. That's just the way it works. Here's some sowing and reaping scriptures from the Old Testament. Proverbs 11:18. The wicked man earns an empty wage, but the one who sows righteousness a true reward. Proverbs 22:8. The one who sows injustice will reap disaster, and the rod of his fury will be destroyed. Hosea 8:7. First part of the verse. Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Now, this is a, this is a kind of a strange metaphor. Sowing the wind means you put a little bit of wind in and you get a whirlwind out. A little bit in, big out is the emphasis of the metaphor. So maybe you start saying a few little bad things about people with gossip. You're going to reap a whirlwind when everything works out that you are in a humongous mess as people slander you and accuse you of things you didn't do. Hosea 10:12. Sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love break up your unplowed ground it is time to seek the lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like the rain so righteousness reap love faithful love it's true folks any christian who has ever lived for a day or two in the christian faith will know that once you start practicing these things good things happen in return galatians 6 9 through 10 so we must not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up Paul is saying, keep on sowing, sowing good. Don't get tired of it. Now, you know, sowing's not easy. You've got to plow the ground. You've got to get out there in a hot sun with a stubborn mule and pull that plow through the ground so that you can, then you've got to lend, bend over, back-breaking back labor, stoop over and reach into the, to the seed bag and start broadcasting the seed. Yeah, it's a lot of trouble, and you could get tired of doing it. But you're going to reap if you don't give up because you've got to wait a little bit got to wait till the growing season, and by golly, then it comes. So it's not magic. God is not a genie. God doesn't operate out of a bottle, out of a lamp like a genie. But in nature, he is shown with hard work and with sowing, you're going to reap. Now, I remember one time, I felt like I was put in a bizarro world where I sowed kindness and got kicked in the teeth in return, which is backwards of the way it ought to be. And it just kept happening over and over. I said, I helped somebody, and they kicked me in the teeth. I helped somebody, and they kicked me in the teeth. Now, I believe that was a special time of testing. I couldn't understand. I mean, I knew it was crazy. I said, God, this doesn't make any sense. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is backwards from the way it's supposed to be. And things straightened out, and now people are blessing me when I bless them. It's not like it was. There was a period of time there where I got very weary of doing good, and I felt like giving up in doing good. Listen, don't give up in doing good. Always do that. God will take care of you. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all especially for those who belong to the household of faith. When you have opportunity, do good. Don't get tired of it, but do good. When you have opportunity, and this is an interesting idea here, you cannot just go out and promiscuously do good to everybody in the world. You know why? Because there is so much suffering, so much pain, so much evil because of sin in the world, you can't make a dent in it. You can't put a molecule of good in the midst of all the sufferings of the world. It, your doing good has to be directed by the Holy Spirit of Christ, He will give you, God, Jesus will give you opportunities. He'll bring people in your path that really are hurting and you need to help them. Not just with money, although that's something that a lot of times people do need, but also with words of encouragement, prayer, advice, counsel, all kinds of stuff. Place to stay, maybe. It'll come up and it's just do it. And, and, and not only for Christians, but for the good of all. But now Paul does make a distinction now. We must work for the good of all, everybody, Christian and non-Christian, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So he does make a distinction between people who need to be helped 
in general and people that are Christians that need to be helped. You have to especially care for those of the household of faith. He uses a family metaphor. Now, if you have a choice between helping Joe, John Doe in outer Mongolia or your own kids, your responsibility is for your kids, not John Doe in outer Mongolia. We all know that. And Paul is saying, hey, those Christians, they're in the household. They're in your family. You take care of your Christians first. And so if you see somebody hurting, take care of them first. Don't just go out and say, okay, I'm going to give to some charity somewhere on the Internet that I found to help somebody. No, you help people first. And there's plenty of poor Christians in the world, I'm telling you, especially in third world countries. There are a lot of Christian ministries that they will actually pair you up with a, a child. A lot of times it's a child that's poor, miserable. And there's nothing in the world worse than poverty, except maybe war. And you give money to that one child, so that's an opportunity. So you focus your giving on something where you're doing good. If you just spin it, put it out there in the world somewhere, your little a bit of money you give gets dissipated into pennies, and it doesn't do anybody any good. So find somebody and do some good for them. Timothy, Paul told Timothy this idea about helping people, especially in the household of faith. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is, his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul tells us that our first primary responsibility is our own household. So all you men out there, and by the way, it's the father. I know in our to feminist time, the, the men are supposed to stay home and wash the dishes, and the women are supposed to go out there and dig ditches and make money for the family and be the leader of the family. But no, it's the men that are supposed to be the leader of the family, supposed to provide for his own. Now, I realize, of course, that sometimes there's a deceased husband or maybe a divorce or something like that. And we have to make adjustments to this hardcore, cool world. And women have to work to support their family. I understand that. But in general, it's the head of the household who's responsible for all that. And he better not be spending his money on bass boats and Z-28s and season NBA basketball tickets. If he's not supporting his family. We go to Galatians 6 verse 11. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Now there's a couple of options as to why Paul was writing in large letters. Then IV says he's trying to emphasize his writing in his own handwriting. And the idea there is look I care so much for you. I didn't even use an amanuensis a secretary. I'm writing you personally in my own hands in big letters so that you can see it. Well, that's one option. Another option is he had poor eyesight. The NIV Study Bible mentions this, and Clark says that's what it is. How do we judge that? Well, in Galatians 4.13, in this book, in this letter, Paul says this, You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. So for some reason, a, some kind of physical illness, he was preaching to the Galatians. And then two verses later, he says, in verse 15, Galatians 4, What happened to this sense of being blessed you had? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So within two verses of mentioning a, mentioning a physical illness, Paul mentions that they would have torn out their eyes and given them to Paul. Why would he say that? Well, he might have just been using a vivid metaphor, or it could be he was referring to his bad eyesight. So, all right, our two options so far as to why Paul used large letters was first option he wanted to emphasize to the Galatians how much work he had done writing this letter because he cared so much for him. The second option is he had to use big letters because he couldn't see because his eyes were bad. Third option he wrote with large letters that were written poorly because Aramaic and not Greek was his native language and so now he's write, writing in Greek to the Galatians that he wasn't used to it. That's John Gill's suggestion. Adam Clark thinks that that opinion is quote-unquote absurd. Why does he think that? Well, because Paul was born in Tarsus, which rivaled Alexandria and Athens in Greek philosophy. So he would have been very much at home in Greek and could have written Greek very easily. He didn't need to write it big like a school child. He could write it normally. I will say that as a matter of curiosity, I started looking up, started thinking, well, what was Paul's native language? Well, it turns out that's a matter of scholarly debate. There's a bunch of back and forth on that. But at any rate, assuming that Clark is right, that that he that Paul was very at home in Greek. Let me back up a minute. The reason that, according to option number three, why Paul wrote in large letters is because Aramaic was his native language, and he could write in normal letters in Aramaic, but not in Greek, which was not his native language. So he had to write in big leader, big letters. But Adam Clark says, "Well, what do you mean? He was in Tarsus, a lot of Greek there. 
you would have been very much at home in Greece. And you remember he spoke to the to the Claudius, what was his name? Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander in Rome, when he was before that howling Jerusalem mob, and he spoke to him in Greek, and the and the the military commander Lysias said, "What? You speak Greek?" So Paul spoke Greek. So I don't think that if he's if he wrote the Galatian letter in Greek, which I assume he did, it doesn't mean that he had to write big letters because he wasn't used to Greek. And besides that, Adam Clark says that Paul would have used unseals, which are rounded, unjoined letters, which is found in European manuscripts of the 4th to the 8th century and, form which, and from which modern capital letters are derived. And those are very easy to write, so Paul could have written unseals in normal size too, not having to write like a school child with large letters. So I think that Clark has completely debunked the idea that Paul is writing large letters because he's writing in Greek, which he's not used to. I think it makes more sense to think that he's writing in large letters because he can't see too good. I think that's the best option available here. Here's another option, actually, uh, a translation issue. John Gill says that it can be translated with what letters, not with what large letters, but just with what letters I am writing to you. Gill makes the point that the Greek translated how great letters are right to you or how large letters to you is only translated that way once in the New Testament and other places. Hebrews 7, 4. Now consider how great this man was, how large this man was, even Abraham the patriarch. And if it is translated that way, and of course most do not translate it that way, but if you do translate it that way, then here's your options. With what letters? Oh, look how nasty and poorly these letters are written. Or with what letters I'm writing? Oh, look at the length of this letter. Eh, well, the problem with that is other letters were longer than that. But the other letters were written by a scribe, so Paul might be saying, well, look at the length of this letter that I'm writing by myself in my own hand. With what letters I'm writing could mean to the grand and sublime content, content of the letter. With what letters I'm writing to you. Or on, on the reverse, a more negative way of taking it, with what lousy letters I'm writing to you. Referring to the inadequacy of the apostle's writing. Well, all of that's a lot of speculation. I think it's just easier to say Paul is saying, look at the big letters I'm writing to you because I can't see as I write to you in my own handwriting. Now, when he says my own handwriting, does that mean just the, the sign-off, the signature part, or is it the whole letter? People disagree over that. The NIV Study Bible says that Paul takes over at this point. The other earlier part of the letter was written by a scribe, as Paul often did. For example, Second Thessalonians 3, he says, This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. This is a sign in every letter. This is how I write. In other words, he just signs off in Paul. That's for a matter of attestation to prove that it's really Paul writing the letter. Romans 16:22, we get a word from one of Paul's secretaries, one of his amanuenses. Uh, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, all of that is a bunch of speculation that really doesn't amount to a hill of beans, really. I just assume that Paul can't see what else we wrote in large letters. We go to verse 12, Galatians 6. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, Paul here refers to the legalists who make a good impression in the flesh because they say, look at our penises. We have our foreskins cut. Aren't we good little boys? That's how they make an impression in the flesh. They're talking about in the flesh of their foreskins. Are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, compelled by saying, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. But Paul says, that's, they don't care about you going to hell or not. They're trying to be avoided, to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ because they know that if they go around saying that you don't need to be circumcised in order to get saved, there's going to be a lot of Jews persecuting them as they were in every city of the Roman Empire. Only in Philippi and Ephesus was Paul not persecuted by the Jews and all the towns he visited during his missionary journeys. So there was Jewish persecutors everywhere, and Paul doesn't mind pointing out their motives. They're just a bunch of fraidy cats. They're scared they're going to be persecuted. Paul didn't compel people to get circumcised. In Galatians 2.3, he says, Not even Titus, who was with me, and it's debated whether it was on the first the second trip to Jerusalem with the poor offering the first poor offering to Jerusalem or was it to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 but wherever it was Paul has taken Titus to Jerusalem a place where there are legalists galore and it says not even Titus who was a Gentile though he's a Greek was compelled to be circumcised I didn't make him get circumcised so I don't make people get circumcised and these people are making you be circumcised you know when Paul goes after the motives of these generally it's a bad idea to go after the motives of your opponent 
Paul didn't have any compunction about it, though, and maybe he had evidence that they were trying to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. I don't know. But generally, that's not a good idea, but Paul did it. Now, I said that these who were making a good impression of the flesh were bragging about the fact that their foreskins were cut off. Well, that's one option. They could be, they, it could be a little less direct than that, a little less physical than that. Maybe they're making, trying to make a good impression in the flesh because they're saying, we're descendants of Abraham because we are fleshly descended from him. We are physically, genetically descended from him. Or it could be they want to make a good impression in the flesh because of their natural gifts of learning and eloquence, as John Gill suggests. I think it's probably because they're bragging about the fact that their foreskins are cut off, they're circumcised properly. Paul mentions this attitude in, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. Pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. My penis has its foreskin cut off. What a big shot I am. Galatians 6.13 For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. However, they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. That means the Judaizers were hypocrites. They talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. They were immoral. They didn't keep the law. And isn't that typical of legalists? That which the law says you should do, you don't do. So you've got a choice. You can either be under condemnation like Paul was in Romans 7, or you can be a hypocrite and say, well, I'm not really breaking the law. I'm a good person, despite the fact you're breaking it right and left. Reminds me one time I had hired a Pentecostal holiness lady. And Pentecostal holiness people, I'm telling you, I hate to overgeneralize, but they have the worst problem with legalism you ever saw. And I hired this woman to teach, and she had a little bun on her head, and she had this old dress looked like it came a little house on the prairie up to her to the tip of her chin it was so high and it went all the way down to her ankles and you know in a christian school you got all these rules because kids you know like you need law as a schoolmaster to lead you to christ well we have laws to keep the kids from tearing the building up or tear or dis disrupting the whole place so it's got to be locked down pretty tight and this woman but the woman would not exercise discretion in in her enforcement of those rules she was a legalist, and she would say, No, I'm going to give you ten demerits because I saw your eyeballs moving. No common sense. Well, one day, I went into the boys' restroom. Well, actually, it was the restroom. It was a, we only had one. Well, we had two, but it was one that both sexes used. Actually, it was the boys' restroom. It was the boys' restroom, and there was a bunch of smoke in there. And I said, somebody's been smoking in the restroom. Well, we got to put a stop to that. So we started investigating. We started looking. And that teacher would look at those kids and say, smoking is sinful. It's going to tear down the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you're putting smoke in there. This is terrible. You're a, you need to confess as to who's doing it. And she goes on and on like that. And, of course, since it was in the boys' restroom, I assume it was one of the boys in the school that was smoking. After further investigation, I found out it was the Pentecostal teacher, the lady with the bun that was doing all the smoking. And I fired her. She was gone. But isn't that interesting? You know, she was. She can't even practice what she's preaching. And that's typical of legalists. Paul points that out here. Even the circumcised, the legalists, don't keep the law themselves. He said the same thing to the Romans in Romans 2, verses 21 through 23. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? And the answer is, of course, they do. You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And, of course, they do. They commit adultery. You who boast by in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Oh, yes, you do. You break the law. You can't even keep the law yourselves. Paul repeats that idea here in Galatians 6.13. All legalists, sooner or later, fail to keep the law they're under. It's just a matter of time. They, the legalists, want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. They want to say, look at my convert. His foreskin is cut off. That makes me a super-duper evangelist, a super-duper teacher. What they should have been doing, doing, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, they should have been boasting about what the Holy Spirit had done in their lives, not about the state of their foreskins. We go to verse 14, Galatians 6. But as for me, as for Paul, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is a metaphor for what happened on the cross. The blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ as he was slain as a substitutionary lamb for our sins. That's what Paul's going to boast about, all, all of that which was entailed by the cross. That's what he's going to boast about because that is totally and utterly opposed to legalism. 
You either, you either get saved by the cross or you get saved by the law. Ain't nothing in between. And he's talking about boasted again. Of course, that he's referring to the legalists who are boasting about their law-keeping, as all legalists do. They're proud as they can be. Paul says, The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. Now notice the metaphor of crucifixion goes both ways. The world is crucified, and I am crucified. Or Paul is crucified. It goes both ways. Well, let's take the world as crucified. That means the world has become as dead to Paul. The world's dead. So Paul looks at the world, all the pride, the position, the academic honors, the sexy women, the big bank accounts, all of that stuff, the fame, the fortune, and it looks to Paul like it's a dead, stinking corpse with flies buzzing around with the flesh splitting and the putrefied innards seeping to the surface of the corpse. That's what the world looks like to Paul. You know, and who's going to be attracted by that? Paul could care less. And he proved it by his life because he was a big shot rabbi, I remember, on the Sanhedrin. Hebrew of Hebrews, and instead he became walking around suffering hardship, financial hardship, and being treated like a criminal almost everywhere he went. So, But he didn't care, because he knew about the cross. He knew about freedom from sin. Okay, I said the metaphor both, worked both ways. The world is crucified, but also Paul is crucified to the world. And looking at the metaphor that way, a dead man is not attracted by the world. Let's say the world's still alive with all of its flesh, its power, its fame, its fortune, its sexy women, and all that. And you're a dead man. So do you care? Can a dead man care about all that stuff that's in the world? dead man doesn't care about a thing because he's dead. Now, this crucified metaphor is used a lot in Paul, Galatians 2, 19 through 20. For through the law, I have died to the law. He's not attracted by the, thing, by the law anymore. So that I might live for God, I've been crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. So you're dead to the world. You're also dead to the law trying to do good. By keeping the law, you're dead to that too. Crucified with Christ. Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's how you get rid of sin, folks. Not keeping the law, but being crucified to the law. Crucifying your flesh, remember, flesh and law, same thing. You crucify the flesh, that means you don't try to keep the law with your flesh, and therefore you're not attracted to the things that the law says you're supposed to do, that you're not supposed to do, because your passions and desires to do all those bad things are gone. So that's how... You increase your holiness and your sanctification as you crucify your flesh, which means you crucify the law. You die to the law, Galatians 2.19. You die to it. You don't care about it anymore. A dead man doesn't care about anything. If you die to the law, you don't care about the law. Either to keep you from doing bad things or to help you to do good things, the law is dead to you. It doesn't matter. It's only the law of Christ now, the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.6. For we know that our old self was crucified. It's over, folks. It's dead. It's crucified. In order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. That's how you get rid of sin. You got old sin. The old man's crucified. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. You got to be crucified. That means get born again. Get sanctified by the Spirit. Not by the law. Colossians 2.20 If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, i.e. the law. That's what elemental forces means. It means the law. That's what. The, if you look it up in a concordance, that's what the word means. If you died, it's stoichia, I think the word is. If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Law, law, law. It's not going to work, folks. Now, Paul mentions this idea of the world. I gave you a sort of a rough and ready description of it. The world has been crucified to me through the cross. Well, here's how that world can be. The word world actually can be used in a lot of senses. It can, it can, mention, it can mean the Roman Empire. It can mean the planet Earth. But here... The world is that system of sin that allies itself with the flesh to destroy you spiritually. James 4.4. 4. Adulterous says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? There's a way of thinking out there, a mindset, a Weltanschauung, a, a worldview that is totally opposed to Christianity. And it's called the world. And any Christian who advances three or four steps into the faith will realize that he is all of a sudden an alien. People in the world if they understand him, will look at him as if he is nuts. And he looks at the world as if they are nuts. And I don't want to have a thing to do with that. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And there's your binary hostility, if you will. The world on one side, God on the other. So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. you got a choice, a binary choice. God or the world. That's why worldly Christians are people the most... I think happy pagans are better off than worldly Christians trying to live with one foot in God's world and one foot in the in the devil's world. 
I remember a guy who is now a dedicated Christian, but it must have been 20 or 30 years ago. He went with a Christian friend and some other non-Christian friends on some kind of a fishing trip, I think it was, and they rented a hotel. And my my Christian friend was telling me about this. I didn't go. I just heard about it. He said they rented a hotel, and there was two adjoining rooms with a door. And this guy that's kind of hesitating between two opinions, who's now a dedicated Christian, but at the time he wasn't, he noticed the distinction between those two rooms. The Christian's rooms, there were no beer bottles thrown all over the place. The room was neat. There was no smoke hanging in the air. There was no raucous music dinning everybody's ears. And then in the other room where the non-Christians were, there was exactly the opposite. <laughs> Smoke, beer cans, cussing, nasty music. And the contrast was so great that this man who was hesitating between two opinions, he stood in under the door, the lintel of that door with one foot in one room and one foot in the other, and he started rocking back and forth. He would look into the sinful room, and then he would rock back and look into the, the Christian room, and he looked at my Christian friend didn't say anything. <laughs> But he was he was doing an object lesson. He said, man, there is a big difference here. A big difference. I'll never forget that. That was great. Big difference between the world and the kingdom of God. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. you got your choice, the world or the Father. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But everything that was a gain to me... I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Remember, Paul was a big shot Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin on the Sanhedrin. More than that, I also, not only that, he lost his wife, apparently. She wasn't with him when he, he had to be married to be on the Sanhedrin. That's why people think he was married. But he wasn't carrying her with him as he went. So I suspect that she did not become a Christian. So he lost his wife, too. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. You crucified the Christ, you're going to look at the world as filth. It's not going to be too attractive to you anymore. The world is inseparably allied with the flesh, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. And when Paul says, as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross, He's contrasting himself to the Judaizers who were busy boasting about themselves. I mentioned that the cross was a symbol for what took place on the cross. It's a symbol for the intoning death that took place on the cross. As John Gill puts it, it's a symbol for the infirmities, the reproaches, the tribulations, the persecutions that were endured for the sake of Christ. Gill kind of expands the metaphor a little bit, talks about not only what happened on the cross, but also what happened to Paul physically as he went around, around preaching the cross of Christ. Well, anyway, we go to Galatians 6.15. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. A new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. The Christian life is totally different than the old life in the world and the flesh. It is totally different. It, oh, I know you might you're going to sin every once in a while, but you're going to you might lapse into sin and loathe it, but you're not going to leap into sin and love it. And things are really, really different. Paul says that circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. That's a zero. That's a vacuum. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. What matters is, do you believe in what Jesus did on the cross? Paul also says that, he said that in the last chapter, Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. There's a contrast between faith and the law. Love and the law. 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. But keeping God's commands does, does matter. Verse 16, Galatians 6, May peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy to the Israel of God. Follow what standard? The standard of righteousness by faith alone, not by keeping the law. Peace come to all those who follow this standard of liberty, of grace, of freedom, of promise. And the implication is peace is not going to come to those who follow the legalist because life under law is anything but peace. It is a life of torture and misery. And then Paul says, and mercy, and mercy to the Israel of God. Now the Israel of God. There's two options here. It could mean the church consisting of believing Jews and Gentiles, and I think that's what it is. Another minority opinion is, is talking about Christian Jews. Mercy to the Israel of God means, means the Christian Jews who believe in God. Now let's just take that second minority opinion first. The mercy to the Israel of God. Why would Paul sign off his letter and say mercy to 
to the Jewish Christians? Well, in order to say that, you have to translate the, the and there as and and make a distinction between peace, may peace come to all those who follow the standard, that would be the Gentile Christians who are not legalists, and also mercy to the Jewish Christians in the Galatian churches. Two different, the and referring to two different groups. Well, why would you make a distinction? Why make a distinction? He's talking to the whole church. You can be a Jew following that standard of freedom. You can be a Gentile following the standard. Or you could be a Jew following the law. And you could be a Gentile following the law. Why the distinction? I think there's some theological bias there. This is just my humble opinion. Dispensationalists would love to talk about how you have to be literal. And Israel is Israel. And the church is different than Israel. We can't have Israel replacing. Excuse me. We can't have the church replacing Israel because they're two distinct things. We can't have the Old Testament Israel, morph, the old Israel, morphing into the new Israel as a fulfillment. Well, no, we don't want to have that. So there's some theology behind that. Of course, I don't believe in dispensationalism, so I don't have trouble. I don't. That theology doesn't guide me. I think it just makes more common sense here. Paul is talking about the church, the Israel of God. Now, does that mean that the church replaces Israel? Well, you know, the the all those who blast that interpretation, they do it by pejoratively saying, "See there." The church replaces Israel, and therefore the church doesn't like Israel anymore. Well, how about this? Let's just call it fulfillment. The Jews had the oracles of God, and that their kingdom was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Their earthly kingdom is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, and they can get grafted back into the olive tree when they believe in Jesus. There's nothing anti-Semitic about it. I remember I was going to one of these Jewish wannabe conferences for a weekend. I was surrounded by this stuff, and I remember guy getting up there and talking about anti-Semitism and replacement theology. And I said, buddy. And then I had, and then one of the secretaries of one of these teachers who was on TV a lot, she said, talked about how good the Pharisees were. The people who killed Jesus were good. And I decided there's something wrong with this, something bad wrong. So they were the one, that's where I first heard the word replacement theology. So I'm a little bit sensitive to that. You know, don't, don't use pejorative words with me. I believe in fulfillment theology. The church fulfills Israel. And Paul does it right here. Just like the author of Hebrews says when he says, There will be a new covenant. I will make a new covenant. Quoting Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, the new covenant is the church, folks. So that means that that the author of Hebrew used Old Testament terminology to refer to the New Testament church of God, just like Paul is doing here in Galatians. The Israel of God. The house of Israel and the house of Judah is now the new covenant church. The Israel of God is now the new covenant church. Now, this idea about being a fleshly Jew as opposed to a spiritual Jew is everywhere in the Scriptures. Let's look at Romans 2, 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you outwardly circumcise or not. What matters is what happens in your heart. Do you believe in Jesus? Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed, there's the fleshly Israel. But Paul's not talking about fleshly Israel. He's talking about Abraham's spiritual seed. If you belong to Christ, that's how you get to be a child of Abraham, an heir according to the promise. Romans 9.6, but it is not enough as though the word of God has failed for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, not all who were physical Israel, genetically Israel, are Israel because they are spirit, they're spiritual Israel, the church. Philippians 3, three for we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God. And Paul is talking about spiritual circumcision because we serve by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus, and we do not put confidence in the flesh. In other words, confidence in the, that our foreskin has been excised. Romans 4.12, and he became the father of the circumcised. That's the Jews, and he is Abraham, who were not only circumcised, but also following the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham believed before he got his foreskin cut. Likewise, Gentiles, Jewish, uh, Gentile believers can do the same thing. It's, if Abraham can believe by faith without well, being circumcised, so can Abraham, so can Gentiles. Galatians 3, 9, so those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Faith, 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 not law, 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 law. All Israel, or Israel after the spirit, spiritual Israel, is contrasted with Israel of the flesh, or fleshly Israel, as the NIV Study Bible point out in John Gill. We look at the scripture in 1 Corinthians 10.18. Look at the people of Israel. The Homo Christian Study Bible has it. The NIV Study Bible says the Greek there is literally Israel according to the flesh. So look at Israel according to the flesh. 
Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar? Israel according to the flesh. Fleshly Israel. There is a distinction in the New Testament in Paul's writing. We go to verses 17 and 18, and we'll shut this audio down. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. We're in Galatians 6 still. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Jesus. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. No one calls me trouble. Now that he's talking about the Judaizers, let him leave me alone. Now, what kind of trouble could he be talking about? He could say, no one calls me trouble by opposing me. And then he says, don't cause me trouble, Judaizers. Why? Because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, scars for the cause of Jesus. How do those? How does bearing on his body the scars of Jesus keep the Gentiles, keep the Judaizers from causing Paul trouble? Well, he could be saying this, option number one, don't let anyone further argue with me because my enemies glory in the circumcision of their flesh, but I glory in the brandings of my flesh for the cause of Jesus. That's Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown's reading on it. Another way you could read it is this, I have suffered enough with stonings and beatings, so don't cause me to suffer more having to deal with these people. Let them leave me alone. I've suffered enough. Let me repeat that, those two options of why Paul says because... He says, because I bear on my body scars. Why could he say, because I bear on my body scars from preaching the cross of Christ? Option number one, because I bear on my body the scars of Christ. I don't need any more trouble from these guys because I'm bearing on my body the scars of the cross of Christ. Whereas my enemies are only glorying in the circumcision of their flesh. Well, let them shut up because I'm doing more than they are. They're talking about circumcision. I got. They're talking about their flesh. Let me tell you about my flesh. I got scars on my body for what I've done. That's one way of reading it. Adam Clark, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown. Here's another way you can read it. Paul says, no, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the scars for the cause of Jesus. What he's saying is, because I have, I bear on my body the scars for the cause of Jesus, I've suffered enough. And don't cause me to suffer anymore, having to deal with these Judaizers. Now, how did Paul suffer in his body? Well, he was stoned, he was beaten, he, he had illness, and he just suffered in general. Let me give you some scriptures to give you a feel for that. In Acts 14:19, this is at Lystra. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Paul was beaten, Acts 16:22 at Philippi. Then the mob joined in the attack against them. Paul and Barnabas and the chief magistrates in Philippi stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. 2 Corinthians 11:25. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans, once I was stoned by his enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and day in the open sea. He was sick, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Especially because of the extraordinary revelations, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, of course, that doesn't mean sickness necessarily. A lot of people debate that. So let's throw that one out. But how about in Galatians 4, 13 and 14? You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. So Paul says, I was sick. You didn't despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. He was sick enough to be a trial to the Galatians. Sufferings in general, Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul had a sharing, a fellowship of a sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. So Jesus got suffered in his flesh and Paul saying, I'm suffered in my flesh. So Paul had a lot to appeal to there. And by the way, the fact, let me, this is another rabbit trail, Galatians 4, 13, where Paul says, I, I preach the gospel to you, Galatians, because of a physical illness. People have the idea that apostles could just heal people willy-nilly automatically. And I've seen cessation to say, see there, the apostles could do that, but Christian healers today can't do that. Well, look, in the body of Christ, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, they were gifts of healing which means that some people could pray more than other people and have better results. But it didn't make it automatic. Paul wasn't automatically healed. I remember one cessationist wrote one time to me and said that, well, that's because in the Old Testament, Paul originally could heal instantly, automatically, but as the closing of the canon got nearer and nearer, as he got into AD 60 or so when he, he was writing this, he started to get sick, which is the biggest bunch of 
horse patooki I've ever heard. Listen, praying for healing is like praying for anything else. God is not a genie. Sometimes you have to wait for the answer, and you have to have faith and endurance in the interim. Paul calls the Galatians here in verse 18, Brothers, he doesn't mention the sisters, and I can hear the evangelical feminoxies moaning, Oh, Paul, was not. he didn't care about the women. Well, the word adelphoi, which is translated here, brothers, it means siblings, brothers and sisters. I mean, even in the Greek word, it means brothers and sisters. And because either it was not translated precisely when you say brothers, and even if you don't translate it precisely, you can assume sisters. Paul is just assuming sisters when he said brothers. I mean, if I say my brothers in the church, that means my brothers and sisters. I don't have to explicitly say sisters every time. It could be, though, however, he was addressing the all-male leadership of the Galatian church. That's an option. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finally finished with Galatians 6. Hope you enjoyed this audio. Hope you stay tuned in for the next audio as we take up the study of Ephesians.